standing and our children can be dismissed to Children's Church. Um, Chris Ruiz is standing in the back by the door and so some of you, we don't have your names and phone numbers on the church directory. You, know, you don't need to be a member for that. But we've got people that have been coming for a good time consistently, and we want your phone numbers. We want your name so we can bother and pester you, Ron and Jana and, and Darlene. And uh, Janet, I know you're moving to California, but Daniel is also there in the back. And you have a friend, a young lady that often comes with you. I don't see her. Your cousin, okay, Cheryl, and so we would like to get, so um, Chris can get your phone number, and then Aaron and Anna, so I think that's about everybody that I see that we don't have a record of your phone number and address, so we can just stay in contact with you. Um, so let's open our Bibles to Romans chapter 12, we're going to read verses 3 through 8. If I miss somebody who's not on the directory, you just go ahead and see Chris after church. Um, I think I, I, it's everybody that I recognize that's not on there, though. But if, if you're not and you know you're not, or if you're wondering if you are, just talk to Chris. All right, Romans chapter 12, verses 3 through 8. For I say through the grace given to me, to everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. For as we have many members in one body, but all the members do not have the same function. So we, being many, are one body in Christ and individual or particularly members one of another. Having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, let us use them if prophecy, let us prophesy in proportion to our faith, or ministry, let us use it in ministering, or he who teaches in teaching, one who exhorts in exhortation, the one who gives with liberality or sincerity and he who leads with diligence, and he who shows mercy literally, hilariously, with cheerfulness. Lord God, you have placed at North Valley individual members here who are gifted uniquely. God, we desperately need each other, and God, you have, in your wisdom, placed us according to your sovereignty. The Holy Spirit is sovereign just as God the Father and God the Son is. And you choose what gifts we have. And so, God, I pray today as we study this passage, we will understand better today what it means practically to be a living sacrifice. We pray this for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Go ahead and be seated. So last week, I challenged you to memorize Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Now, I think my wife already knew the verse, but she quoted it to me this week. But does anybody want to just give a, a whirl at quoting Romans 12, 1 and 2 for us this morning? We'll all be so impressed if you can say it for us. <laughs> Jana, did you... No? I'm picking on you. <laughs> Anybody want to give a try? All right. I bet you Julian has it. Somebody's going to look me in the eye. because. <laughs> All right. Romans chapter 12. We're going to just start there because we can see that verse 3 starts with the word for. So even though many of our study Bibles have a line across there, there's no line in the original text. In fact, the word for is connecting it all together. We've heard the word for in the start of verse 4 as well, the numerical for. 
And then we see in verse 5, it starts with the word so, drawing a conclusion. And then the last half of this paragraph just picks up with a participle in verse 6, having. And it's sort of a causal participle. Because we have different gifts. So really, this is all one thought flow, flowing out of the idea of being a living sacrifice. So Paul says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren. And the word therefore is casting us back to chapter 11. So Paul is beseeching. He's pleading with people because of God's incredible mercy. That God's mercy is unfathomable. No one ever instructed God. No one ever taught him. And his mercy and his grace is so amazing that God would blind and harden Jewish people so that the Gentiles could receive mercy and through their mercy provoke unbelieving Jews to jealousy so that they might receive mercy because God has concluded, God has confined, God has put us in a net all under sin so that everyone might look to God for his mercy. And so therefore, by the mercies of God, Paul is beseeching us to present something. And he wants us to present our bodies. And he tells us how to present them, to present them as a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable, unto God, which is your logical, it is your reasonable form of spiritual worship. We're not to be conformed, put into a mold of this age. Rather, we are to be transformed, and the means that we do that is the renewing of our mind. And when you renew your mind, you are able to put things to the test. Is this God's will for me to be thinking this right now? I'm renewing my mind. Is this God's will for my hands as a living sacrifice to do this right now? I'm testing these things. As a living sacrifice, is it appropriate for me to be listening to this? I have offered all of my members to God. Is it appropriate now for me to be using my tongue in this manner, speaking these words? So as you renew your mind, you are able to prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. I say, therefore, or Paul says, for I am saying to you through the grace given to me, to every one of you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly as God has dealt to everyone a measure of faith. So you can see how these are connected. So we know what the foundation of Christian living is all about. We studied that last Sunday, and I'll go over it really quickly. We present our bodies. That is the foundation for Christian living. Here I am, Lord. Here's my life. I want you to use me. We do this in view of God's mercy. That's the right and proper response to God's mercy. His mercy is withholding His judgment and wrath that we deserve. And because God has withheld that and given us mercy, the proper thing is to present ourselves. Notice that Paul wants us to present our bodies. The word present means to yield or to surrender, to offer to God a holy offering. It's reminiscent of the Old Testament when they would bring an offering and the whole entire offering would be burned. It would be consumed on the altar. All of it belonged to God. And in the New Testament, we don't bring animals. We bring ourselves. And all of us brings and belongs to God. That means God desires our heart. God desires our emotions. God desires our wills. He desires our heart, our thoughts, our actions, everything. We bring it to God. This is our reasonable, and the Greek word is logikia, 
where we get logical, it's only reasonable, it's only logical in view of all that God has done, that God, I want to give it back to you. And the sacrifices of God are this. They are a broken and contrite spirit. These, O oh God, you will not despise. So living sacrifices, we are supposed to be so different from the world. We are not to be conformed to this world. And the Greek word for world is ionos, where we get the word eons or ages of time. And so it has a little bit different idea than the cosmos. We're not to be conformed to this age. It's this present generation. We're not supposed to be conformed to the political age that you and I live in. We're not to be conformed or poured into the mold of the social norms of this world. We're to be radically different from that. The economic things of this life, we are not to be conformed to them. It's not about getting and gaining wealth on this earth. All those things are of this age, and those things are temporary. And we are to be transformed by renewing our mind. So how does that flesh out in everyday Christian living? What does that look like practically? Paul makes it very easy for us to understand what that means. It means that you and I find out what our spiritual gift is, and we use that as a part of our living sacrifice, understanding how God has uniquely gifted you. Living sacrifices discover their spiritual gift and is then devote themselves to developing that gift for the glory of God and for the building up of God's people. Our passage today starts out with the word for, indicating there's a connection between presenting ourselves and then our giftedness within the body of Christ. So first of all, I want to point out this morning, for I say to you through the grace given to me to everyone who's among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. Verse 4, for as we have many members in one body, but all members do not have the same practice or same office, same function. So we being many are one body in Christ, and individually we are members one of another. So the first thing that I really notice in this passage is that living sacrifices must be in community. A living sacrifice must be in communion with the body of Christ. I cannot function as a living sacrifice unless I am part of a local assembly. Now, I've often been challenged with people when I mention the notion of church membership. And I often hear this, that there's no explicit verse anywhere in the New Testament that says I need to be a member of a church. It's not explicitly said anywhere. It is implicit. In other words, it is just assumed. It is just taken for granted that when you get saved, you become a part of the body of Christ. It's just, it's, it's just, it's just what it is. Now, those bodies, those, the, the universal body of Christ, has to meet in a, locale, a locale, a location, right? And so if you look at the New Testament, the pattern is so clear. The Jerusalem church began to grow. Persecution began to hit the church. And so what happened is that the believers went everywhere, and what did they do? They went preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ, and when people accepted Christ, they began to gather together almost instinctively for the purpose of edification, sanctification, comforting one another, and toward multiplication. The Great Commission in Matthew 28 is to go out and make disciples. You can't do that outside of the local church. Baptizing them. Teaching them to observe. In the book of Acts it says they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and prayers and breaking of bread and fellowship. So the body is just assumed. Now when the 
church at Jerusalem came to their ears that Gentiles were getting saved, what did they do? They sent a pastor. They sent a shepherd to gather those people together and to encourage them and to exhort them to continue in the Lord. And when they did that, many more people came to Christ. That man was Barnabas. Now, Barnabas knew he didn't have all the spiritual gifts. The body needs different gifted people. So he went out and found Paul the Apostle, Saul of Tarsus. And they assembled together. The Greek word assembled means to join one together people who were formerly separated. That's an assembly. That's what a church is. You and I didn't know each other apart from Christ. And now that we know Christ... You and I have a natural affinity for one another. It's amazing what God has done in this little tiny church called North Valley Bible Church. But we have an affinity. We have a love for each other because God has placed that. You and I are separate people, but in Christ we are united. So Paul comes, they assemble together, and they did it for an entire year. And he discipled them. And in Antioch, this is where they were at, they were first called Christians. And it's interesting, it was out of the church at Antioch that the Holy Spirit calls two of the church leaders, Paul and Barnabas, come into the work that I have called you and separate yourself. And the church sent them away by laying their hands on them, and they went out and they formed local assemblies. We have the pattern throughout the book of Acts. So membership is just almost implicit in the New Testament. So, I want to just point point out to you, too, how important it is for a living sacrifice to be in community with other believers. So, who is Paul addressing here? So, let's look at verse 3. The main verb is, I say. The means through which he is saying it is through the grace of God. And then we've got the indirect object. Who is he saying it to? It's to everyone who is among you. The community. So who is he addressing? He's addressing the community. Those who are among them. And what is to be done? What has God done? I'm sorry. What has God done? He has dealt to everyone a measure of faith. So not everybody has all the gifts. So we have to be in community. Well, how does God accomplish this? Many members are needed to be added to have a complete body. And every individual is important because we are all different. Having then gifts differing. So living sacrifices must be in community. You must be in the body of Christ and participating and committed to a local assembly if you are going to be a living sacrifice. It doesn't happen outside of the community of Christ. So here's some applications. This morning, you look at this church body. Everyone has a spiritual gift. Everybody has a spiritual gift. I was reading the book of Acts this morning. And when Peter preached, he says, when you repent and are baptized, you will receive the remission of sin, and then God will give you the gift of the Holy Spirit. And so when the Holy Spirit comes and resides, he then endows you with a spiritual giftedness. Paul said this in 1 Corinthians 12, 7, but the manifestation of the Spirit is given to every man. Now, that man is generic, every single person. And why? It's to profit all of us. So that's one simple application. Since each person has been given a measure of faith, we therefore are accountability, I'm sorry, we are accountable to the body of Christ. Because you and I have a measure of faith, You and I then have to use that gift within the body, and I am accountable to one another. We are accountable to each other as the body of Christ. That's why 
It has to be done. Living sacrifices must be in community. And because unity is provided through diversity, no one, not a single one of us, have all the spiritual gifts necessary for maturity. I have got to be in community with you, and you have to be in community with this local body if you want to grow spiritually. You will not grow apart from the local church. You will die, and you'll get cold, and you'll get indifferent. Paul wrote the Ephesians, same context, the context of spiritual gifts, in Ephesians chapter 4, starting with verse 11, and then down you get down to verse 16, and it says this, from whom, the whom is Jesus, from whom the whole body, that's you and I, we are fitly joined together and compacted by which every joint supplies according to the effective working of the measure in every part and what does it do it makes increase of the body unto the edifying of itself in love I will grow so much more when I'm around the body of Christ. It's happened to my life so many times where somebody has shared something that I needed to hear. Somebody's encouraged me or someone has inadvertently rebuked me just through the way they are living their life. So those are some practical applications. First of all, a living sacrifice must be in community with each other. The second point is living sacrifices must be humble. If I'm presenting my body as a living sacrifice and I need the body of Christ, humility is indispensable. I was watching a guy on YouTube this week and it just happened to come up that he was speaking about Pride Month. <laughs> and he was saying, I think that's a little bit over the top. An entire month and then he goes on to talk about pride. Is that really something that we want to exalt? We want to exalt pride of all things. And we want to exalt it for an entire month? Are you kidding me? Pride is not something that we should be seeking after. Pride, think about pride is such a hindrance. When you and I get proud, it hinders you and I from receiving anything from the body of Christ. I think I know it all. I think I've got it all together. I don't need you. I'm, I, I'm, I'm all that I need. Pride puts other people off. It keeps you from being able to impact other people's life. Even what you do have, they don't want. Because you're proud and arrogant about it. So Paul, when he exhorts them, how does he do it? This is an apostle. This is a man who was so spiritually gifted. And this is the way he beseeches them. For I say to you, how did he speak to them? He spoke to them through the grace. And then he has an appositional phrase to describe the grace. Just so that you know that Paul was an apostle on his own goodness, his own wisdom, his own power. He says, I'm speaking to you, but I'm only doing it through the grace of God, and that grace was given to me. I didn't merit it. I didn't earn any of it. And I'm coming to you humbly so that you will receive with meekness the engrafted word that I want to give you. The servant of the Lord must not be quarrelsome, but humble in meekness, instructing those that oppose themselves lest perhaps peradventure God will grant them repentance so that they may recover themselves from the snare that the devil has taken for them to do his will. So the only way that you and I can have an effective ministry as living sacrifices is through humility. 
Paul wrote this to the Corinthians. For I am the least of all the apostles. I am not even worthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am who I am. So when Paul beseeches, when Paul says, what I want to say to you, I'm only saying it because God has given me this grace gift to encourage people. Spiritual gifts are no reason for pride, are they? Rather, they are an occasion for sound thinking. Look how many times the word think is found in the verse 3. I say to everyone who is among you not to think. That's the first time. More highly than he ought to think. That's the second time. But to think soberly as God dealt to measure faith to everyone. Three times he uses a form of the word to think in that verse. So spiritual gifts are no reason to think of yourselves more than you ought to think but rather spiritual gifts are an occasion for sober thinking. The word sober literally is sophroneo. And to think is phroneo, but it means to think in a sound judgment, having all of your faculties ready to reason it out. The implication is that God God is the one who has done it. Look at the word as at the end of this verse. At the end of verse 3. As God has dealt to each one. The word as has the idea there since or because. God has the one who's dealt it. God is the one who's gifted the person. Humility promotes unity. Humility realizes that the gift is from God. And I cannot take any credit for it. One of my favorite verses that I've memorized is 1 Corinthians 4-7. And it goes like this. It's a bunch of rhetorical questions. The first question is, for who is it that makes you to differ from another? The obvious question, the only reason that you're different from somebody else is because God has made you uniquely. For who is it that makes you to differ from another? And the next rhetorical question, and what do you have that you didn't receive? Every single thing that you have, whether it's a spiritual gift or whether it's a natural talent, you received it from God. So what do you have that you didn't receive? Now, if you did receive it, and here's the third rhetorical question, why do you boast as if you didn't? So spiritual gifts and natural abilities are no reason to boast. But on the other side, Paul says, I want you to think soberly. So what we need to avoid is this false humility. Oh, I'm really nothing. I'm a nobody. I don't have any gifts. I don't have any talents. You know, I don't know why God uses me anyway. No, that, that, that's nothing but false humility. That's why Paul says, I want you to think soberly. Pride prevents us from being teachable and receiving something from somebody else. And false pride puts people off, and it keeps you from appreciating your giftedness and what God has done for you. I loved the video this morning. The man who's praising God. And he's praising God because God had given him all those tools. And then he says, I thank God because God has given me hands and God has given me ten fingers to work with. That's a man who was thinking soberly. He got out in the garden. He used the tools. He planted the plants. And then he groomed them with his hands. He knew what he had to do. But he also at the same time recognized that everything that he got was from God. What a... Good illustration I had there this morning for us. It's a serious balance, a viewpoint that realizes I need others. That's the humility. And then the soberness, it's a good, honest appraisal of your giftedness 
and how it is harmoniously contributing to the overall body. So here's some applications. Every one of us needs to use our spiritual gift with humility and appreciation. Secondly, we need to guard against pride because it will hinder us from using our gifts appropriately. And thirdly, to be sober-minded and sober-thinking, it helps you appreciate your giftedness. And it gives you a desire to develop that gift. And it encourages you, when you're thinking soberly, to confidently find your place in the body of Christ. My third point is to use the spiritual gift. That's so simple, isn't it? Find out what your gift is, and then just get active doing it. Paul gives us seven spiritual gifts in this passage. It's easy to remember where the spiritual gifts are. They are in chapter 4 of Ephesians and chapter 4 of 1 Peter and Romans chapter 12 and 1 Corinthians chapter 12 to get all of the gamut of all the different spiritual gifts. But in this particular passage, Paul lists for us seven spiritual gifts. And he says, just find out what your gift is, whether it's prophecy, whether it's ministering, whether it's encouraging, whether it's gifting, giving, or whether it's leading, or whatever it is. Find out what that is. Get yourself plugged into the body of Christ and start using it. So simple. So because gifts are different, there's various degrees of giftedness. So it tells us that everyone at North Valley Bible Church, every one of us are essential. Not a one of us is not needed. It also implies that every one of us are limited without each other. I'm limited, you're limited, we need each other. Whatever gift you have, this is an important point, I hope I get your attention here. Whatever point, whatever gift that you have, you are therefore responsible to develop others so that they can then do what you are doing. So if you have the gift of evangelism, you should be using that gift, not just out witnessing to people, but people that don't have that gift, you should be training them to be evangelists. If you have the gift of teaching, you should be walking people through how to study their Bible and how then to present that truth to others. If you're an encourager, you should be going up to others and say, let me show you how to encourage other people. Now, where do I get that from? I get it from the Bible, of course. But Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 says, He himself gave some, that's speaking about Jesus when he ascended up to heaven, he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastor teachers. And then we have the word for. This tells us the purpose of those gifted people. For, it's the word pros in the original language. The reason I'm giving it to you because the word for is found twice in that verse, but they're different Greek words with different shades of meaning. The first for is the purpose. Why does God give gifted people to the body of Christ? For the equipping of saints. That's why you're in this body. That's why you have a spiritual gift. It's so that you can equip somebody else to do what you're doing. The Greek word for equip is katartizo, and it's used twice that gives us a good understanding of what that really means. The first time it's ever used in the New Testament is Mark chapter 2 and verse 17, when the apostles were mending, katartizo, mending their nets. So when you are equipping somebody, you are taking somebody who's not useful yet, got some holes, got some frayed edges, and you are then mending them so that they can do what you are doing. So that's the first four, for equipping. And then the next preposition that's translated for is the Greek word epsilon iota sigma, or pronounced ice. And that means the result or the goal when you equip somebody else for the equipping of the saints so that they then might do the ministry of God. And I think the church 
is probably failing more than anything else in that area. I know as a, as a pastor, I need to take my pastoral gifts and be implementing and training somebody else to do what I'm doing. If you're a Sunday school teacher, if you have a gift to work with children and you see another lady who's struggling, take that person aside and say, now this is the way you can get the kid's attention. This is the illustrations that you can use that will open up their eyes. That's the job of the body of Christ, to do those things. Now, I've said all that before I've gotten to the gifts. And so the first gift that I want to draw attention to is the gift of prophecy. I think the gift of prophecy is probably misunderstood in the New Testament more than any other spiritual gift. Paul says, I want you to use your gift of prophecy in proportion to the faith, literally. The Greek word for proportion is analogy or analogous. It's a mathematical term. So a prophet is to use his gift of prophecy, her or he, analogous or analogy equal to the proportion or equal or measuring to the faith. There's two ideas. The first one, if you're going to speak prophetic words to somebody, you had better make sure that those are analogous to the body of truth that's been revealed to you and I in the faith. Prophecy in the New Testament isn't so much foretelling future events, it's forthtelling, it's giving. In fact, if you want to know what the gift of prophecy looks like, you can look up this verse after the church, or you can look up now if you want. 1 Corinthians 14.3. There's three words that describe prophecy. Prophecy is exhortation, it is encouragement, and it is comfort. Those are the three things that a prophet does. He speaks encouragement, exhortation, and he speaks comfort, or she does. Now, the reason I'm saying that the New Testament prophet isn't an inerrant person who's just saying, oh, thus saith the Lord, because in that same chapter, in verse 29, it says when one prophet speaks and other prophets are in that room who have that gift, they are to judge it. They are to discern it. Say, wait a minute, brother, I think you're a little bit off there. Brother, I think you've got the right idea, but you said this, and that doesn't accord to the faith. That's not what God is actually saying there. And I have observed this gift in our Sunday school. It's beautiful to watch this. As somebody who has that gift of exhortation says, you know what, I think this verse is telling us to do this. And then I'll hear somebody else on the other side of the classroom say, wait, I think that's not exactly right. And as we're judging it and we're sussing all those things through, so that's kind of what the gift of prophecy is. I'm kind of rambling up here. So let me just give you the three definitions of prophecy again. The first word is edification. That's what a prophet does. He edifies. That's to build someone in their faith, to advance someone in their spiritual growth. The second word is exhortation. That's to give instruction and also admonition. It's to reinforce or to correct. It's to push someone on forward to what they're doing correctly or to guide them and hold them back from doing what is wrong. Exhortation. The third word is to comfort. The word comfort literally means to provide hope in a trial. So a prophet comes alongside and he sees how God is going to use that difficult situation. And he speaks comfort to that person. He speaks hope to that person. He tells them, this is how God has used that difficult situation in my life, and I can see what God is doing in your life. That's what a prophet is. He's able to take application from the Bible to a current situation in your life. So that's, that's the first, first gift. Now, I already talked about how it's safeguarded. It's to be done in the analogous or the proportion of faith. One other idea, that idea of proportion of faith, is that you and I need to be very, very guarded in what we say. It's in proportion. It's the idea 
and that here's where the mathematical part comes out. It means that it needs to be, the prophet, when he speaks, needs to refrain from speaking if he is uncertain about what he's going to share with that person. So err, if you're a prophet, or you want to give somebody comfort or encouragement, err on the side of caution. Now, I, never mind. I'm not going to go there. <laughs> okay. Let's go to the next spiritual gift, ministering. Okay, when we think of a minister, we think of somebody with a robe and a white collar. <laughs> but that's not what Paul's talking about here. A minister can be somebody who preaches the gospel. But this is more of a generic term. It's the Greek word diakonos. We get the word deacon. A deacon can be a male or a female. And I think in the New Testament era, in the New Testament time, I think husband and wife teams function as deacons together, a deaconate and deaconess. In fact, there's qualifications for a deacon's wife in 1 Timothy chapter 3 because she was involved in this service. It's not a position of teaching. It's not a position of authority. It's a position where you are meeting people's physical, material, spiritual, and social needs. That's the idea of this word, to minister, to teach. A person provides needs for people under critical circumstances. The use of this gift is mainly physical, but is no less a spiritual ministry. The first time that is found in the New Testament is in Acts chapter 6 and verse 1, where widows were being neglected in the ministry of providing for those who needed help. If you want to see how it's used in another passage, let's just turn over to Romans chapter 15, and we can see how ministry is providing needs for people who need the help. So in Romans chapter 15, verse 25 and 26, let's read it together. I'm not going to spend a lot of time here. But now I'm going to Jerusalem, and here's the infinitive. Why is he going? It's the same Greek word. I'm going to minister to the saints. Now, how is this? What kind of ministry is this? For it pleased those from Macedonia and Achaia. Go to the book of Philippians. You go to the book of 1 Corinthians, and you'll see what the Macedonians and the Achaeans were doing. They were taking up offerings to send a certain contribution to the poor saints who are in Jerusalem. That's what it means to minister. It means to see other people's physical needs and then put real application to it. Now, the reason I say that women were also involved in this ministry, if you look at Romans chapter 16, verse 1 and 2, Paul says, I commend to you Phoebe, our sister, who is a servant. The exact same Greek word. She was a diaconess. She was a deaconess. She was a minister, not in a clergy-type minister, not an ordained pastor. No, but she was a servant. She was a minister in the church at Centuria. And look what, she, what, what Paul encourages, that you may receive her in the Lord in a manner worthy of the saints and assist her in whatever business she has need of you, for indeed she has been a helper. That's what a minister is. You come along and you help people, many people, and myself also, Paul said, this lady was meeting physical, material needs, and it's just as spiritual as a gift of prophesying or teaching. The next gift, teaching. The word teaching, didasco, it's one who sets, a time, sets aside time for studying and then imparting knowledge, imparting doctrine and instruction for application. Now, Paul believed that Timothy had the spiritual gift of teaching. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, Paul writes Timothy, he says, I have left you, Timothy, in Ephesus so that you would teach some to share no other heterodoxy. 
heterodoctrine, no other heretical, no other different kind of doctrine. I'm leaving you, Timothy. I want you to be a teacher. And I want you to straighten things out in that church at Ephesus. Because there's a lot of people who want to be teachers of the law and they don't know what they're talking about. Titus was supposed to do the same thing. I'm going to leave you in Crete so that you will silence those who are teaching falsely. Now Paul tells Timothy, I want you, Timothy, to study to show yourself approved. A workman who does not need to be ashamed, one who can rightly cut straight the word of truth. So a teacher is someone who takes great care in studying the Bible, making sure he understands the culture that is written to, the context, the grammar, the idioms, the figures of speech, and then he has the ability to teach that to other people. One of the qualifications for a pastor, 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 2, he must be able to teach. The next spiritual gift is the gift of exhortation. Para, that's alongside, like a paramedic or a paraprofessional, someone who comes alongside. And the other part of that word, it's a compound word, kaleo, it means to call out. So an exhorter really literally is one who's called alongside of somebody else to speak words of encouragement and compassion. How the church needs that spiritual gift. Barnabas, you know what his name literally means? Some of you Bible scholars, you know this. He was named Barnabas because he was the son of encouragement. So if we look at the life of Barnabas, you'll see a man who demonstrates the gift of encouragement. The first thing that Barnabas does is he sees a lot of poor people. And you know what that encourager did? He took his own property on the island of Crete, I believe it was. You can check me, I might be wrong. But he went and he sold that property. And he brought it to the apostles. And he says, here, here's all my possessions. I wanted to use it to help the poor. Now, when the church got scattered and Gentiles were coming to the faith, who did they pick to go and speak to these non-Jewish people? They picked an encouragement, an encourager. They sent Barnabas. So not only is he generous with his giving, but he's generous with his attitude toward people who are ethnically, culturally, religiously very different from himself. An encourager is someone who's not judgmental. When Paul got saved, he tried to join himself to the apostles. And they said, I have nothing to do with you, Paul. You're trying to set us up. Who took Paul in and brought him to the other apostles? It was Barnabas. That's an encourager. And lastly, the last time that Barnabas is mentioned in the book of Acts, they got in a sharp contention about their missionary trip. They were going to take another missionary journey, right? John Mark went on the first trip. John Mark said, I'm cutting out of here. It's too tough. The second missionary trip, Barnabas says, I want to give John Mark a second chance. That's an encourager. Someone who's generous. Someone who is willing to give up what they have to be a blessing to others. Someone who's non-judgmental about somebody else's culture, who can go and, with an objective mind, teach and correct those people. Someone who's willing to give somebody a chance without judging them. I'll take Paul in. And when John Mark got kicked to the curb by Paul, he says, I'll take this guy, and I'll take him on a missionary trip with me. And you know what Paul writes at the end of his life? He writes to Timothy, and he says, I want you to bring John Mark, because that man is profitable to me. Why did, not, why did Mark not just, just quit the ministry? Because somebody who had the gift of encouragement sought him out and said, you know what, I'm going to take him under my wing, and I'm going to give this guy a second chance. And the guy was used 
So we really need that gift of encouragement. The fifth gift is the gift of giving. It is to be done, and the Greek word is apolous. And I'll give you a couple of references where that word is used. It's used in Matthew's gospel on the Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus is warning people, don't lay up your treasures on earth, but lay your treasures up in heaven. For the light of the body is the eye. And if your eye is apalous, the whole body is full of light. He's talking about treasures. He's talking about money. Now it's translated, if your eye is good, But the idea is if your eye is generous, if your eye is genuine, you're not concerned about treasures on this earth. You are concerned about giving away your wealth because the next verse is you can't serve God and money. So a genuine, healthy, good eye is a liberal eye that wants to just share everything you have. Another time that this word is used is in... Colossians chapter 3 in verse 22. Paul's writing there and he says, Servants, don't serve your master merely with eye service when he's watching you. In other words, kids up in the front row, don't just give pastor attention when he's looking at you. Do it all the time. He says, Servants, don't do it with eye service, but do it with apolous. Singleness is the way the old King James translates that singleness of heart, a genuine heart, a generous heart. So when you're serving your master, you go and you do it with liberality. So if you're going to be a giver, if you're going to be someone who shares, do it not stingily. Don't do it grudgingly. Do it with a genuine heart that just wants to overflow on other people. The next spiritual gift is leading. I think in my translation, it says, those who rule, that's the King James, those who rule, one who exhorts and exhorting, one who gives with liberality. The New King James says, one who leads. Again, I'm going to refer to you to the original word. It's a compound word, pro, which means to go before, and the word istomy, which means to stand. So the idea of someone who rules or someone who leads is someone who stands before you. The idea of that original word has to do with a shepherd. And you think about it. A shepherd. What he, a shepherd doesn't stand behind the sheep, does he? And drive them. That's what a cattleman does. A shepherd stands in front. And so this is a pastoral word. The one who Leads the one who rules, and he does it with a caring heart because he wants other people to follow. So if you want to lead, you want to rule, you want to be out in front, you do it. How do you do it? You do it with, let me see, with, but with diligence. Spudazzo. It's, it's just being excited about it. Because people are going to follow somebody who's enthusiastic about what they're doing. So a leader is a pastoral person who cares. The emphasis isn't on your authority, but it's on your shepherding heart. The gift is to be practiced with earnestness. It is to promote the health and the well-being of the sheep. Peter exhorts shepherds this way. I want you to shepherd the flock of God care for them that's among you. Taking the oversight, not out of constraint. If you're going to lead, don't do it because you have to, but doing it willingly because you want to. Not for money, but do it as an eager mind. Not being a lord, not somebody who's overbearing on God's heritage, but to be an example to the flock. The last gift that Paul mentions here is the gift of mercy. Mercy is active. It is willing. It is sympathetic to those who are suffering. Mercy must be exercised with cheerfulness. Otherwise, it's nothing more than a burden. And when you don't show mercy with cheerfulness, 
it gives the person who's receiving that a sense of guilt rather than receiving it graciously. Application. Gifts naturally surface when there's a need. Barnabas probably didn't know he had the gift of encouragement until he saw that there was a need for people and they were hungry. He said, I'm going to go and sell my gift. Barnabas probably didn't know he had the gift of encouragement when no one else would take Paul. He said, I'll go and get him. Barnabas saw there was a need for someone to come alongside John Mark. So spiritual gifts will manifest themselves to you when you see a need and you feel a compulsion to meet that need. That's how simple it is. You don't need to take a battery test of spiritual gifts. Now, those are helpful, and and they're usually pretty close, but they happen spontaneously. So what should the church do? The church needs to provide an environment where community will naturally happen. I've got to confess, we're doing a so-so job at North Valley Bible Church of doing that. We can do a lot better. We've got our ladies' Bible studies. We've got a men's Bible study. We've got a small group prayer meeting. And occasionally we have home meetings. Or we have a picnic. Or we have a worship night. But those are sort of the hit and misses, aren't they? And we need to do better. We need to provide an environment as a church where we have a sense of family, a sense of community, where we're not sitting in pews looking at the back of somebody's head. This is not conducive community, is it? And we need to do better. God has given gifted people to this body. We need to be humble, but secondly, if you're on the fringe and you're wondering, is this the local church that God would have me serve in? Then I want to exhort you today to seriously consider membership. Now, what is church membership? I keep it really simple here. We go through our doctrinal statement. So you know what we practice and what we teach. And those major things on that doctrinal statement, we're not going to jot every tittle and dot every I and and cross every T the same. But those major themes of the doctrinal statement, we as a body are committed to them, and we're not going to undercut what this church teaches And it's saying publicly to the body of Christ here, I too am a follower of Jesus. And I confess Jesus Christ is my Savior. And this is the local church that I'm going to be committed to. So that's how simple it is. Or church membership is simple as being baptized publicly and saying, this is the group of believers that I identify with. And I want to be baptized with this group of church people. And I belong to this body of Christ. And I'm publicly telling everybody... This is where I want to serve Christ. The church must promote this atmosphere of exercising spiritual gifts. So thirdly, how can we do that? How can we make that clear in our church? I have been praying and talking about and dragging my feet, I know, about starting some small group fellowships in our church. But we've got gifted men in this body of of believers Men who have the spiritual gift to lead, to pro-istomy, to stand before people, to care for people, to shepherd people, to encourage people. And we want to get together in smaller groups. So part of my motive today was getting your phone numbers is to make that a little bit easier for those men to contact people. So I wanted to say this is the way to be a living sacrifice. This is the way God has planned it in the body for you to be a living sacrifice. First of all, to be in community with other believers. Second of all, use your spiritual gift with a sober mind. Humility, but not false humility. Acknowledging that God has gifted you and then finding out what that gift is and then plugging it into a small group and saying, I want to be a part of this group. When I hear a need, I want to be someone who can give. I want to be somebody who can show mercy to somebody. 
I want to be an encourager. I would like to teach something that I read in my devotions this week. That happens in community. It happens with humility. It happens as we get to know each other and put down some of the barriers and the walls between us. Let's close with prayer. Father, thank you so much that the body of Christ is a unique living organism that is growing and every joint supplies. Every gift is needed. And God, in your sovereignty, you have put the people together at this church so that we can mature and so that we can train others to do what we are doing. And God, that we can see the growth and the multiplying of your family on this earth. We pray this for your glory in Jesus' name.